All right, good morning. Grab your Bible and find the book of Ecclesiastes. Favorite book so far, I believe, Ecclesiastes. We will be in chapter 7. We'll finish chapter 7 this morning. We've been kind of rushing through Ecclesiastes. We're trying to finish it up by the end of the year, and uh, we're just going to start a a new series in January. But uh, we do want to take Ecclesiastes serious, but it is one of those books, if you read one verse and you don't get the whole book in context, uh, you can come away from Ecclesiastes with some pretty crazy ideas. And uh, you may say, well, it's, it's in the Bible. It's like, yeah, but you didn't read, you didn't read the whole thing. It's much like, it, we, we've said this one a thousand times, I know you probably get sick of me saying this one, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, does not mean I can win this football game through Christ who gives me strength. Um, even though that's probably the most common way we hear the verse, or maybe in school I can, I can make an A on this test through Christ who gives me strength. Instead, it means I can handle poverty through Christ who gives me strength. I can handle cancer through Christ who gives me strength. Very different sort of thing. We're going to see that a couple times in this passage, and uh, I think we're going to have some interesting conversations as we go through, and we have to remind ourselves that he's being serious when we go through this. So I always said I wouldn't be like my dad. Anybody, you know, you don't know when you're that age that that's, you you can't help it. You're going to be. And uh, so my dad would just, child abuse, okay? Let me give you an example. He would say, hey, 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 Brian, do you want some ice cream? And I'd be like, yes, I want some ice cream. He's like, oh, I was just curious. We don't have any. <laughs> I'm like, I would never treat my kids that way. <laughs> so uh, tomorrow is Abby's birthday. So I got up this morning, I looked at her real serious, I said, Abby, your 10-year-old life is over. It's done. It will be no more. And she's just looking at me like, you're so weird. <laughs> you know, but I don't know. Anybody just have that sarcastic kind of corny slash, you know, cynic, cynical sort of humor? All right, it can feel like when we're walking through Ecclesiastes that some of his statements feel just so far into hyperbole that we kind of just oh, he's just being dramatic. You know, people like that. They they say something, you're like, yeah, okay, well, dial it back by tenfold, and that's probably what they really mean. He's just being dramatic about everything. And what I want to reinforce as we're diving into Ecclesiastes today is the Ecclesiastes author is not being dramatic. He's being articulate. He's being clever, certainly, at times. He's, he's using literary device, certainly, at times. But he means what he says. So let's just remind ourselves of the context the book of Ecclesiastes. So it's found in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. So this is considered, in a sense, the pinnacle of learning you could think about in the Old Testament. This is their view of what it means to be wise is in this book of Ecclesiastes. And even the title and the nature of how the book is composed has this idea of, I've searched this out, I've thought it through, and now I will make my presentation. Anybody do the TED Talks? online, like watching those TED Talks. Well, the idea behind a TED Talk is you're listening to one of these people for what reason? They're the expert 
in that field. That you don't get somebody to get up there and talk about something they're not good at. You know, they've spent their life working on this field, or they have some new innovation or some clever idea that they've managed to work out. And, and people get really excited to gather in that room and hear what that guy has to say. And so the word Ecclesiastes itself means that guy in the room. It's Ecclesia, if you know that word, is the, the, the uh, New Testament word for church. And Ecclesiastes is like that gathering. You put somebody in the front who knows what they're talking about. So in a church setting, the preacher is the Ecclesiastes or the Koheleth, which is why oftentimes in the book we call him the preacher. It's just the idea, this is the guy at the front of the room, and his TED talk is, I've studied it all, I've considered every end, every angle, every lifestyle, every worldview under the sun, and let me, in my expert opinion, tell you how we should live life. This is the context of Ecclesiastes. So it's an Old Testament Hebrew TED talk by probably Solomon or someone like him who has wisdom unparalleled. And just to, I don't want to make it suspenseful, like, well, what's the key? The key throughout Ecclesiastes is very simple. His, his final conclusion, you can go read the last chapter, verse 13. This is the conclusion of the matter. And it's very important, you know, the first two words in the conclusion of the matter is fear God. Now, we, we say that all the time. We know that that's a a basic element of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Um, but we don't really interpret that or mean it the way Solomon means it. We are very quick to say, well, fear doesn't mean fear. It means respect or reverence. Whereas, you know, biblically, it kind of means fear more than it means respect or reverence. And we'll get into that as we, as we, we dive in. So to launch into the passage, um, I don't know if your Bible has subheadings, the subheadings for my Bible over this section, and it's a fair subheading, it says the contrast of wisdom and folly. So we could think of wisdom and folly, you know, grammatically anyway, as opposite terms. Wisdom is to be smart, to be knowledgeable, to be um, wise in your decision-making and your understanding. Folly would be to do things foolishly, unwise, really just they're opposites of one another, and we have a tendency to define each word by saying it's not the other word. So to be foolish is to be unwise, and to be wise is to not be foolish. And we kind of use that. It's a common thing in, in all languages to work that way. But we're going to describe this as two ways. Now, I want to think about, we've said this already, but uh, the word in our culture that probably is more fitting a lot of times for, than wisdom is we use the word pragmatic. Now, when I say the word pragmatic, you probably have different things come to your mind. And pragmatics is, you know, good. We want to think about cause and effect and how if we do certain actions, what kind of results can we produce? We want to measure the effectiveness of a strategy. And I love strategies. I love systems. And on a farm, I love pragmatics. And I want to know, I'm not interested in just doing something away because I want to operate the farm in a way that's functional, that produces good ends, that's a good turn on investment. I want to um, be able to use something in multiple things if I can, eat grass and provide some other service, whatever I can. I want to multiple. I love pragmatics. So pragmatics aren't bad, but biblically, wisdom means pragmatics, sorta. It only kind of means pragmatics. And pragmatics is this idea of, well, if I act smartly, if I get, use good judgment in my decisions, I can produce good results. Now, if you've read the book of Proverbs, you'll recognize that there's an awful lot of 
good result-based Proverbs. Train a child up in the way he should go. What's that say? Do you know how, can you finish the verse? And he will not depart from when his, he is old. He's, it's making a promise of make good decisions now, get good fruit later. There's a pragmatic element in the wisdom of the Old Testament. We see a pragmatic element in the wisdom in the New Testament. Jesus, when he's given the Sermon on the Mount, which in a lot of ways is, is a radical reintroduction of, of what the Old Testament was supposed to mean, and no one had really connected those dots in Jesus' air, and he's, he's reintroducing this Christ-like character and the moral law, and he's teaching through this. But even some of his advice is very pragmatic when he tells you to settle up with your accuser before you get to the court, because then... There's a different level of authority working there. And so that's just a practical, pragmatic wisdom in following some things. So I'm going to sound like I'm anti-pragmatic wisdom kind of the further we get into this. I'm saying all of this at the beginning to say I don't mean always because there's a lot of biblical wisdom that is indeed certainly pragmatic. If you never hit your thumb with a hammer, you know, that's smart. It's a good thing. There's a lot of behaviors that are not smart, and if you do them, bad things will happen. So we're going to contrary wisdom and folly, but I don't want you to see that wisdom just means act smart, get good results. There's going to be a bigger layer, a more significant understanding of what wisdom is as we go into this. And before we fully hash that out, let's just dive in now to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to work our way through this text And there's going to be some interesting statements in here. So you've probably heard the first one. A good name is better than precious ointment. So a good name is better than precious ointment. That one feels good. Now, in Hebrew, one of their primary structures, so like if I'm speaking in English, if I was going to write a song or poetry in English, the most important thing is that I have consistent meter, you know what it's by meter, how many syllables are in a phrase, and then how the phrase ends. What do we call that in English? In in English, poetry has to rhyme. Roses are red, violets are blue. I don't know what else is coming, but the last thing we'll say, you. You know, it's going to have that statement. We're just going to fill it in. It's got to have the the meter and the rhyme. Well, that's, that's American poetry. That's Western poetry. In Hebrew poetry, what you do is you say things in parallel structure. So if... It's better to have a good name than precious ointment. I mean, that's kind of, we we get that. That makes sense. Really, that's just the setup for what he's really going to say, which is the second half of the verse. So better, a good name is better than precious ointment. Or in other words, the day of death is better than the day of birth. You see how those are the same statement, right? (laughs) Maybe not in Western eyes. We look at that and we say, what? (laughs) No, a good name is better than precious ointment. And... (laughs) <laughs> the day of death, better than the day of birth. Now, note, first of all, we're talking about this third person. So we're not talking about my death or my birth. Um, this is me, the observer, third person, viewing the death or birth of someone else. Now, just think about it. What, what's happier? Going to the hospital the day a kid is born or going to the funeral the day someone died? <laughs> it dep- okay, okay, it depends. There's, that's fair enough, okay, but the general assumption, I think we all readily admit we'd, we'd rather be excited about the baby being born than going to that funeral. Solomon, however, he's not being sarcastic. He's in some very serious way saying 
that the good name is like the death and the precious ointment is like the birth. So in what possible way could the death, going to a funeral is better than going to a birth? Now, just to be clear, he's not in any way saying birth is bad. Children are a blessing. Uh, Life is a good thing. It's, It's glorious. It's God's good nature that allows us to have the good things that we have, but he's saying that the death, the day of death is better than the day of of birth. Let's just kind of keep going through the text and see how this works out. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. You can see the difference. The house of mourning, the the death, versus the house of feasting, where this is some kind of celebration. Perhaps it's a birth, perhaps it's a, a wedding feast. There's some glorious occasion. I mean, would you rather be sad or be happy? And I think, you know, this is the opposite of what we feel like the truth would be. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Now there's a hint of what he's getting to. By sorrowness of face, or there's a sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Now, I think if we're honest, if we go to a funeral, it's not just my face that's sad, it's, it is my heart that's sad in that scenario, but we can see into the reasoning, he's saying there's different levels here. Maybe there's d- different kinds of joy, different kinds of satisfaction that are bigger than the circumstances that I'm in. He's making a superficial distinction between the sadness on the outside versus a gladness on the inside. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, this connects him with what Solomon has said many times so far. The smarter he got, the wiser he got, how did he feel about the world around him? Despair? Cynical? Does that happen to you? You increase in knowledge... You increase in cynicism, skepticism. Somebody's with me. I preach it. You know, it's kind of. I, there, there's, there's a legitimate. We can connect the dots in our own experience. The more we know, the more we see just how dumb, just how unsatisfactory things could be. I remember. Uh, so my first job after college was to work security on the campus I had gone to college at, and those guys just felt so you know, special. They deserved our respect. When I was a student, the security officer keeping us safe, you know, like they, they do an important role on campus. And then I become one of them. And it's like, this whole thing's a joke, guys. <laughs> Knowledge kind of lowered my respect of everything else. And so Solomon's connecting some dots here. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Really, the, the, the wiser people maybe are more depressed because you kind of have to be a fool to be happy. Ignorance is, oh, thank you. Perfect. I didn't even think of putting that here. It's exactly where this goes. Ignorance is bliss. Hey, that, that's exactly what's happening here. Anybody feel like there's, you know, oh, he's just being sarcastic. This is all hyperbole. That's why we started this. Solomon's being very serious. He, he doesn't mean this is a joke. He doesn't mean it funny. Now, as we work through it, sure, you know, we, we make some, some fun as we go along, but Solomon is being very serious. And then verse 5, we can connect here. It is better for a wise man to hear the rebuke 
of the, sorry, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. Well, maybe there's more sense here than we've seen in the others. Well, to hear the rebuke of the wise suggests what's happening in that wise person rebuking me. Maybe there is some benefit in the negativity, some benefit to the criticism, some benefit to the exhortation, whereas if we're just singing a stupid song, yeah, it's happy, but it's not doing anything to me. You're starting to see there's a, there's a layer under here. There's a bigger layer than just your circumstances. Verse 6, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression um, drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? All right, now, let's say that how we would normally say it. It's not the former days are better than these. We call the former days the what? You know, the good old days. For it is not from wisdom that you ask this, the good old days. No, not a good idea to say that. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. Now, verse 12, if we just count that in verse 12, we could make a very nice prosperity gospel. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. That's pragmatism. Do you see it? If you're wise, it preserves your life. So is there any way you could say that that wisdom and money are a protection? Well, I mean, yeah, I I think we really do mean that. In a lot of ways, we think about life. If, I know I love doing the, the Financial Peace University thing with Dave Ramsey. Um, he's got this saying, though, and we could, we could tuck it in nicely right here, that you know, it seems like Murphy visits the poor more than he visits the rich. You know Murphy's Law? Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. But there's, there's this assumption in there, if, if you don't have money, you don't have the protection against Murphy. If you do have money, you, you are protected against Murphy. Now, I'll just say there's been times in my life where I would have to sit back and say, well, okay, yeah, that's true. I feel like when I was poor, everything goes wrong. And when I had more resources, a lot of things were just easier. Life was, I mean, seriously, do you ever just sit back and say, if I just had a little more money, this, this would be okay? Well, we could say, well, that's shallow. Well, the reality is if you had a little more money, some of those things might actually be better because you could just fix it. You could just take care of it. You could just work through it. So there's this advantage to knowledge in that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. He's just saying the same thing about money is also true about wisdom. Having money makes maybe Murphy's Law less applicable to your life. Having wisdom can make life in general just work out more smoothly. Pragmatism. You connect the dots. All right, we're doing pragmatism. And don't you like, if we just quoted verse 12, this becomes our Philippians 4.13 all over again. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can preserve my life through 
wisdom. Well then, verse 13, consider this. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Who can make straight what he has made crooked? What's that talking about? God breaks something. Right? If God brings calamity. Think about Job. We've done the story of Job on Wednesday nights. We wrapped that up a few weeks ago. But where did the crookedness in, in Job's circumstances come from? God brought the evil on him, right? It says, Job quotes directly, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then in round two, if you know that was only the the first season, and the second cycle when it's really bad and his wife tells him to curse God and die, he asks that question, well, should we receive good from the Lord and, and not receive evil? And then Job, as he grows increasingly frustrated, With the Lord, a lot of times he's just coming back and resting on this idea that if the Lord has broken him down, what can he do to fix it? It's like, you know, you ever go outside, I can get kind of pessimistic. Anybody pessimistic? I have this statement, sometimes I'll just say figures, which is the most like, that's pretty bad if you think about it. That's that's like me saying God's cursed me. I just know God has cursed me. I'm working on a project, especially a car or something. You fix something, and then as soon as you fix that thing, what happens? Something else breaks. And you're just like, throw your hands up in the air. Like, like, what? It's like God has cursed this car. It doesn't matter what I do to this car. I can put a billion dollars, rebuild every part on this car, something's going to break. All right, well, I'm being a little dramatic. Okay, you can see I get revved up on this topic. My bad, I'll calm down. But you, you can follow the idea if God, but seriously, if God cursed my car, I'm not saying he did, just a hypothetical scenario. If God cursed my car to never run, who could make it run? Nobody. Doesn't matter how good your pragmatism becomes. Doesn't matter how smart you are. Doesn't matter how much protection you get from money. Doesn't matter how much protection you get from wisdom. If God says, nope, I'm going to break it powerless to do anything about it. Now, that can sound like pessimism. This is actually biblical wisdom, and this is the key. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know. I love children. You know, it's just that, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> you know, if the Lord ordains that to happen, there's nothing we can do about it. It's, it's coming. It's going to happen. All right, so here's how I want to fill in the blanks in the outline. I have the way of folly compared to the way of wisdom. We're actually going to go like the way of folly one, and then we'll do one under the way of wisdom. So we're going to go in, in uh, what do you call it, in syncopation and, uh, as we fill this in. So the way of folly, I'm just going to use what we've done so far to, to fill in the first two blanks. So the way of folly, the first thing it does is it highlights man's capabilities. Anytime we're thinking in folly, it's going to be because in some way we are ascribing to man more power than man deserves. Oh, I can fix this. Or I can work this out. Or if I just have security in my life. We always achieve and wrestle and work towards. And this is exactly what Jesus is fighting against in the Sermon on the Mount when he, when he talks about his worry. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Now, I don't, it doesn't matter what you do. You cannot stretch out your life by one day. You cannot fix this. You are living in the world, living in the story that God wrote. He is sovereign. And we have this in our day and age. We, we really get upset about God being sovereign. But in the Bible, it's just a given. 
It's assumed. It's expected. This is what God does. If it happens, it's by God's design. And the way of folly, in a sense, is working against God's power by saying, we're capable. We can make something happen. Say, we, if we really worked at it, we could build a tower to heaven and become God ourselves. That's one of my favorite stories in Genesis, by the way. What do we call that tower? Tower of Babel. You know, God is omniscient, right? But sometimes in the telling of stories, it, it doesn't, you know, emphasize all of God's attributes for the sake of storytelling. And I love how in that story, it's like we pretend for a moment that God's not omniscient. Because in that story, man starts to build the Tower of Babel, and they're going to achieve this tower that goes all the way to heaven. And literally, it says the Lord came down to see what they were doing. You hear the sarcasm in that, right? It's like God's up in heaven. He looks down on the earth. Man's building this glorious tower. He's going to go up to heaven. They'll become gods themselves. And he's like, there's something down there. I'm going to have to go down and see. It's so tiny. From my perspective, I can't tell what it is. I just love that story. But if God says, no, you're not building a tower, you're not building a tower. If you sell out the sea and Jonah says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run from the Lord, God says, you're going to Nineveh. You're going to Nineveh. Like, you have no power compared to the Lord. So the way of folly highlights man's capabilities. The way of wisdom fears the power of the Lord. Can you imagine Jonah, that moment on the boat, when he realizes this storm was his? God sent the storm for him, and they were going to have to throw him over the water. And he lands in that water, and then the big sea monster opens its mouth. I cannot imagine in that moment that Jonah would say, well, fear of the Lord is just reverence. What would he say in that moment? I am scared to death. And that's not the end of the story. I had to spend a few days in the belly of that great beast. God's people on Mount Sinai saw God come down in some manifestation of his glory and presence. He comes down on the mountain in some physical manifestation and begins to speak audibly to the entire population of Israel. What's their response? Terrifies them. Not reverential fear. Actual terrified, shaking, Moses, please don't ever let that happen again. Scared them to death, if you really think about the power of God, you can't fight against the power of God. You cannot wrestle against the power of God. He is sovereign and He is in control. So let's just keep going. In verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Now, we can overread that. That's probably the the simple way you read the end of that verse is not what Solomon is saying. So God made it so that we cannot figure out what's going to happen after us. This is not talking about, well, what happens to the soul after the body dies, or or what happens in, in the resurrection. This is talking about under the sun, your life, experience, you're working towards something. In the West, we love progress. 
We love working towards, we love building. I love thinking about time travel movies and what it'd be like to just show someone from 100 years ago the amazing technological advances we've made today. I love just thinking about that and then wondering, man, if we went to the future, I mean, my favorite movie ever as a kid was Back to the Future, when they go to the future and it's like actually present day, it's, that whole thing has passed for us now. That's weird. But I love just the idea of how, how much more amazing will technology get. We love this idea of progress. But what this is saying is God has set it up so that we, we don't know what it's going to look like on the other end. That's why a lot of your dystopian future movies, they roll the clock forward. You show up and it's not progress. What's it look like? We're back to the Stone Ages. Because we don't know that B follows A every time because we may live rightly. We make good decisions. We may be setting everything up. Solomon builds an empire and leaves it to his son. And what's his son do to his empire? Three days splits the greatest empire Israel ever saw. So you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's coming next. God's made both days, the good ones and the bad ones, in a sense, just to keep you guessing. Because keeping you guessing means you have to fall back on not man's capabilities, but on what? God's power. So let's fill in the next two. So the way of folly then presumes to know God's way. It presumes to know if I act this way, then God will certainly respond in this way to me. This is exactly what Job dealt with with his buddies. All of his buddies absolutely knew without a shot of a doubt what God's will was. They knew exactly how God operated in every scenario. Well, Job, you've experienced suffering. That's because you sinned. So fess it up. What's the sin? And the whole point at the end of the book of Job, Job doesn't actually get an answer. God just shows up and says, Job, you have no idea. You want to try running the universe for just a few seconds. You don't get it. You can't get it. The way of folly presumes to, hey, we can figure God out. Start putting him in a book. We start building walls. Around, well, this is how God works. He's, that's not what the Bible says. What's the Bible say about the way in which God works? It's mysterious. It's beyond us. He's not like us. We cannot figure him out. So the way of folly presumes to know God's way. But the way of wisdom just receives whatever the Lord has given. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. I'm going to bless His name. I'm going to receive good from Him. I'll receive the evil from Him because I trust Him. Job got got frustrated with the Lord. But he remained loyal. He maintained his integrity. He was faithful to the Lord from beginning to to end. Now let's let's get through the last half of the chapter here. I know it's it's noon, but we'll we can manage. Let's do it. Verse 15. In my vain life I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. You see what he's saying there? You can be righteous all day long, but you may die young. You may be wicked and perverting justice. And by that wickedness, you prolong your life. He's seen that. It says, uh, verse 16 then, Do not be overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you 
destroy yourself. Now, that's a good quote for coffee mug. Don't be too righteous. Yeah, you might, might mess your life up if you get too righteous. Now, be clear, we're talking about the, more of the Pharisee-type righteousness here. I'm going to be righteous, and God's going to have to do good to me. Well, if you, if you want to operate by that equation, then it'd be better to take a middle ground. Well, just be a little righteous and not too wicked. Well, stay safe right in the middle. Of course, that's not where Solomon is going with this. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Both of who? The way of righteousness is no good. The way of wickedness is no good. There's a better way. And we assume it's the way of righteousness, but it's not. It's the way of what? Fear of the Lord. That's the way. Because this righteous mentality can very quickly turn into what Jesus is battling with in the New Testament. So it's the fear of the Lord that in both of these is going to walk faithful. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in the city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We know this one. Surely there's not a righteous man anywhere. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. You heard someone say something bad about you before, and they didn't know you were listening, or you overheard. How does it make you feel when you hear that? Or you know, like, you know, you might still be mad, right? You still haven't talked to them since that happened. But hear what he says, right? So don't take that to heart because your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. That's a very pragmatic wisdom in that. Again, wisdom still has a pragmatic value. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Now, this is very significant. Who can find it out? So what's he mean when he says find in that verse? Does he literally mean, oh, I found some document laying somewhere? Find it out is kind of like figuring it out. You see what I'm saying? He's he's searching it out. He's thinking it through, and he's trying to make everything make sense just out of wisdom. And really the conclusion of Ecclesiastes is it doesn't. Life doesn't always make sense. Instead, fear the Lord. But it's very important you know that as we read this last paragraph. Otherwise, this will be what you're talking about around the coffee table um, in this next passage. So just be prepared. Y'all ready? And I've set you up um, to be... Is anybody anxious? There's going to be a weird passage here, so just let's deal with it. All right, I turned my heart to know and search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. So he's, just, he's searching this out. He's going to figure out how all of this works, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. All right, so what's this great evil that Solomon has discovered? Nobody wants to say it. (laughs) Women. Okay, kind of, but no. All right, so if you've read Proverbs, you'll know that there's, there's a very common metaphor in the book of Proverbs. It comes up all the time. There's a woman that you should follow and be ensnared by. What's her name? 
Wisdom, Lady Wisdom. You go to Proverbs 9, you'll compare the two women. So one woman is Lady Wisdom, but then there's another woman. She calls out on the streets, and you need to avoid her at all costs. Don't even go down that street if she lives on that street. What's this woman called? You could call her Folly. Sometimes she's called the Forbidden Woman or the Adulteress or the Prostitute, the Harlot. You don't get near that woman. Now, could this be a literal woman we're talking about? Well, yeah, that's obviously a literal application of that text. But what's the text really talking about in Proverbs when we have this lady wisdom versus lady folly? It's following the Lord and submitting to his way versus temptation. And so he's got this literal example of this woman who's set a snare, and he's saying that's a great evil. Think about it more in terms of that temptress, this the symbolic nature of a woman. But then verse 27 says, Behold, this is what I have found. Found in what sense? Figured out. Exactly. This is what I have found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found. Well, one man among a thousand I found. I figured, I figured this guy out. See what I'm saying? <laughs> a woman among all these, I have not found. Hear what he said? Now, if you have an NIV, I apologize for the terrible translation that you were reading. Okay? <laughs> it's horrible. It's, it even puts in brackets that he couldn't find an upright woman anywhere. That word is added. It's not in the text. He figured out, out of a thousand men that he knows, he figured out one of them. But out of all the women he knows, he couldn't figure out a one. (laughs) Okay. He's not being derogatory here. All right, he's not saying women don't get it and men do, because how many men did he find? One. Think that through. He knows one guy. One guy who figured it out. It's like, I know one guy. I know one guy that's got this figured out. And not a single woman. Because he's a dude. Everybody, you with me, right? He's he's saying he didn't find anybody. It's just a really creative, clever way to say that. All right, okay, I don't know. I I feel like some of you are still kind of working that out in your head. Okay, we're just going to keep going, and uh, you can, you know, ask me questions afterwards. Verse 29, but see his conclusion. Remember he said a few verses before, how many righteous people did he find? None. Not not any. That's the point. See, this alone I found. is the conclusion of that whole narrative. See, this alone I found. That God made man upright in the garden. But they have sought out many schemes. What's his conclusion? We're just all idiots, guys. God gave us the garden. This is what happens, isn't it? In theology, we we like to come up with excuses. Well, why'd God give them that rule in the first place? What we forget is in the garden, there were two important truths going on in that first statement. What'd God give them out of all the garden? What could they do? Every single bit of that garden was theirs for their pleasure, for their enjoyment, for their delight. Only one, one tree couldn't have. Of course, you know that story, right? Let's fill in this last blank, though. The way of folly 
angrily wrestles with its lot, its, its portion in life. It's the, the, the story that God has placed us in. It's, it's mad. It's wrestling it out like, I could do better, is what you're saying when you're mad at God's way. And let that sink in. That's really what you're saying. God, I could have done better. But that's not the way of wisdom. The way of wisdom just patiently trusts God's plan. So if Solomon was in this room, or the Koheleth, whoever it is exactly that wrote this book, showed up in this room, and he was searching out, trying to find somebody who got it. Somebody who figured this out. Is your name going to be written down on the list? That's the question. Jesus came to give us life. Jesus came to provide us with the true wisdom. The true wisdom is not, well, here's all the commandments of the Lord. If I keep them, He will bless me. If I break them, He will curse me. That's not the command of Christ. He said instead, take up your cross and follow after me. This is the wisdom of the ages. This is the wisdom of the Scriptures. This is the call upon your life. And we enter life, and rather than trying to take up our cross and follow Him, we're always trying to fix our surroundings. We're always trying to build our own kingdom. We're always wrestling with the circumstances God has given us. We're always fighting against everything the Lord has done. But instead, let's rest in His power, rest in His plan, rest in His sovereignty, and be faithful wherever He has placed us. Whatever our circumstances are, let's be faithful unto the Lord. This is really the meaning of the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. Fear God. Keep His commandments. For this is the conclusion of the matter. Because we do know that in the end, Solomon didn't have all the information. He knew he could trust the Lord. He knew judgment was coming. But he didn't know the glory of the resurrection that would be to be revealed. And now we know We can stand in the middle of all this sorrow, of all this unwise living around us and know that a glory is coming that will be revealed that will make all the sufferings of this age pale in comparison to the majesty of Christ. And we see how it all comes together. So can we just sit back and be patient and trust what the Lord is doing?